Welcome to the York Story Slam podcast, where we feature select stories from our monthly open mic storytelling events in York, Pennsylvania. On October 17th, 10 storytellers share their stories with our audience at Holy Hound Tap Room in downtown York. Our theme for the evening was Fright Night. We heard stories of frightening situations, near-death experiences, parents who traumatized their children with homemade Halloween costumes, and even one exorcism. Chris Diaz won with his story about his church community's feelings about a video game. All right, since it's Halloween, I'm going to start off with something a little more spooky. Uh, I'm going to go with the exorcist story that I have in my life. Um, and it's not really an exorcist story. It's more of a biblical thing. Um, so 12 years old, take back to Florida. Um, we're, in a little bit of, we're in Florida, and Pentecostals celebrate things and do things a little bit differently than most religions. Um, women are not allowed to wear jeans. They're not allowed to get their ears pierced. Men have to have clean cuts. It's just a very, very unique way of looking at things. Um, so we go to church about four times a week back then. And at this point, there's a, there's, I'm, I'm friends with a couple cool couple guys, and we would go there after church on Sundays. And there was this one Sunday where particularly one of the people, one of the family members that we were friends with, I heard the mom and dad talking in Spanish, and they were like, oh my gosh, like, our son's been doing this, and he's been doing that, and I'm over here trying to pick my ear, and I'm very, very confused with what they're talking about. I find out that they're talking about this game called Kingdom Hearts. Now, I don't know if any of you guys know what this game is, but basically what, what it is is it's a Disney game, but they, the bad guys are kind of like nightmare, like spooky things. So in the game, your whole thing is to beat these nightmare and dark souls in the video game. Well, apparently their son was playing this three nights in a row, and they believed that somehow that their, his soul was getting possessed by this demon in the game that was controlling them. Me, 12 years old, beat both Kingdom Hearts 1 and 2, was very confused of what demons was taking his soul. So we, and, and he, we go to their house, and they're like, they, they have us all sit around this table, and they want us to have a conversation about the game with, with the family. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, I love the game. And then my mom kind of looks at me like, like, what's wrong with you? Like, what's wrong with you? Why do you like this game? Apparently, they were all discussing for hours before how bad this game is, and you're going to go hell, and... And that's kind of what Pentecostals do. They kind of overhype things. You're going to go to hell about everything. And this was one of those things you're going to go to hell of. Their son was playing this game for three days straight. And it's summertime. So obviously, 14, 15-year-old, any game we're playing three days straight. They sit the son around the table. And they have us all there together with everybody else. And they're like, all of you are going to stop playing this game. That's it. No more. This game is going to control your life. It's going to, it's going to take your life. The son's like, this is not happening. <laughs> like, he's like, I have like a couple of levels left. I'm beating this game. You're going to get over it. That's just how it's going to go. <laughs> They're like, me, I know you're going to go, you're, you're going to go hell. You're, gonna, you're not going to make it. You're going to, you, it's the end of the world, basically. And they, they have him stand up and they're like, you know, we're going to pray for you. In his mind, he's like, I don't know what's going on. Regular person's just like, eh, like it's just a video game. They have him stand up. We're all standing around and we're all holding hands. All of a sudden, I don't know how it turned from just a praying thing, and all of a sudden it turned into an exorcist. <laughs> because he, in his mind, I guess he was just trying to convince his parents that he didn't want to lose the video game. So a 14-year-old with controlling parents, I guess you try anything, he just saw in his mind that he was going to fake an exorcism. <laughs> <laughs> 
all of a sudden, he's just shaking like crazy. And, 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 my mom, and my mom's like, close your eyes. Close your eyes no matter what. Close your eyes. So I'm closing my eyes. And all I hear is prayers in Spanish. And I don't know if you guys know anything about Spanish people, but it's very, very intense, <laughs> if I could say that myself. These prayers are like, Gloria a Dios, SOS, Gloria a Dios, SOS. And in my eye, I have my eyes closed. I'm like 11. I'm like, I play this game. What is going on? I open my eyes and I see my friend all of a sudden just kind of going, <laughs> I'm so confused. Like, and all in my head, I'm like, I'm going to hell too, because apparently the demon's gonna come in my soul. I close my eyes and I start going, and everyone around me is doing the exact same thing. Five minutes later goes by. We're doing this for a little bit. And I, like, it's a while. I open my eyes and I look at him. He's on his knees all of a sudden. And like, tears are coming down his face. Tears are going down everyone else's face. I'm like, dang, he, this demon from Kingdom Hearts really took his soul. Like, I'm lost out of my mind. So... The end of it, everyone kind of stops praying, and everyone's kind of together, and then all of a sudden, they're like, you need to break the game. And they tell him, you need to break the game. And like, I, I've never seen someone cry more than he was crying in that moment about breaking that game. He takes the game out of the PlayStation, because that's what PS2, he opens it, takes it, and he goes, <laughs> he's like hesitating to break it. All of a sudden, it breaks, and like they're like, we're doing this for God. We're doing this for Jesus. This is the way it's going to go. You know what? You, we might even get rid of the PS2. And I, he walked away at that point. <laughs> like, he just walked away in sadness. I'm looking at him in sympathy because I understand that, like, this game's really important. I, I feel you, man. I feel you. Fast forward. It's about two months later. I hang out with him again, and I start having conversations with him. I was like, so that whole exorcist thing was like, what, what happened? I'm confused. I'm 11 years old. I don't understand what's happening. He ends up telling me, no, it's all bullshit. I was hoping I was going to still be able to play the video game afterwards. <laughs> and that, that's kind of it. And, and, and I, I guess I can bring this up this way. He saved the memory card. And like I talked to him about a couple, two years ago. He still has the memory card to this day. <laughs> so. Chris earned a spot in our Grand Slam in November. Next up is Scott Fisher. Scott recalled a time when... As a teenager, he and his girlfriend got into a dangerous situation. So in the uh, 1980s, I was a student at the University of Delaware, <clears throat> and I spent a lot of time at the Deer Park Tavern with my friend Brian. Now, he was a really good-looking guy, so I was always the wingman. But on this one particular night, I became the pilot simply by knowing the word lascivious and using it in a sentence. <laughs> It was late October, almost Halloween, and we met these two really cute girls from Philadelphia, and we were hitting it off, and my, my friend Brian says, let's get out of here. Why don't we get out of here and go someplace? And I blurt out, not for anything lascivious, and I'm like, why the hell did I just say that? <laughs> but it turned out to be the exact right thing to say because Joanne, the one who I was most attracted to, was uh, an aspiring uh, screenwriter and wordsmith. And she said, ooh, lascivious, I love that word. And suddenly, she was mine. <laughs> so she invited me to visit her at her place in Philadelphia the following weekend. And of course, I went. <clears throat> she lived in this shitty row house with four other uh, film students who all sat around smoking clove cigarettes and debating whether the big chill was a masterpiece or a piece of shit. 
It doesn't hold up. <laughs> we spent the afternoon in Fairmount Park wandering around, <clears throat> talking about literature and film, and it was kind of like a, a Woody Allen film. It was like statuesque, beautiful woman, dorky looking dude. That was me. <laughs> um, later in the afternoon, she says to me, you know, I should have mentioned this to you sooner, but I have some gigs tonight. Uh, so you can either hang out with my roommates or you can come along and be my wheelman. Gigs, I said. Yeah, she says, I do strippograms. So I go around to parties and I dress up in costumes and I strip down to, no, I don't get naked naked, I just get down to bra and panties and I do it a, a big routine. And uh, so what do you think? I'm like, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> So the, the first gig is at a Knights of Columbus where there's this bachelor parties ra raging. And uh, she is dressed as a nurse and she does her, her routine. She strips down into her, into her bra and panties. And honestly, it was more comical than sexy, but I'm thinking, man, this weekend is turning out amazing. I'm dating a stripper. <laughs> at the next uh, gig, she was a policewoman. She, handcuffed a guy to a keg and danced around and got a holster full of dollar bills. At the third gig, I immediately had a really bad feeling. It was a frat house, and these guys were really, really, really drunk. They took her into this room, and she was dressed as a gorilla. Head to toe, big furry costume, big red kissy lips, red gorilla bra, red gorilla panties, and I'm thinking, who the hell orders a gorilla stripogram except maybe Jane Goodall? But these, these frat bros seem to be into it, so they're, they're hooting and hollering while she does her routine. First off comes the gorilla bra, and then off comes the, the gorilla panties. And that was pretty much it. There wasn't anything else to take off except the costume, and they wanted the costume off. So they're saying, take off the costume. So she did. She took off the costume, and she danced around in her bra and panties for a little bit. But they weren't satisfied with that. They started shouting and screaming, take it off, take it all off. And it was really loud, really obnoxious, and really intense. And I could see terror in her eyes. I was terrified too, because I was like 140 pounds, and I'm the muscle. <laughs> but I kind of summoned my courage, stepped forward, and said, look guys, she's not gonna take it all off, that's not what we do here, uh, just back off. They weren't happy with that. They, they started shouting, take it off, take it all off. And I was just honestly just terrified. Um, so she says, I'm not, I'm not doing that, I'm getting out of here right now. And these two guys, two, two of the frat bros grab me and hold me back and I'm just like tr struggling to get free and the guys all surrounded her and just started shouting, take it off, take it off. And then I guess the, the lead frat pro gets in the middle of the circle and says, starts saying really, really horrible, horrible, degrading things to her. And I'm struggling to get free and she's saying, I'm getting out of here. And he's suddenly the frat pro just starts inching forward and inching forward and he suddenly lunges at her. And she grabs his arm flips him over and he lands on his ass, just cussing and, and moaning. And I'm like, oh shit, we're dead now, these guys. <clears throat> but the frat guys, all they did was start cracking up and laughing at the guy who just got flicked by the gorilla girl. 
I managed to wriggle free, picked her up, grabbed her, took her outside, we got in the car, squealed out of the neighborhood, and I'm like, this is crazy, why do you do this? And through tears in her eyes, she said, I need the money, I'm all alone, uh, my parents are gone, I have to pay for my own living expenses, and I'm determined to become a film writer. And in that moment, I realized that I wasn't much better than those frat bros because I was looking at her just lasciviously and um, I was, felt like an overprivileged poser. My parents paid for all my college expenses and I just really realized that she was, she was a, a woman and I was a boy. So we dated for about eight months and um, the distance between Newark and Philadelphia got difficult and our romance faded out, and I lost touch with her. But, um, and so I don't know if she ever became a filmmaker or a screenwriter, but I hope so. And I hope if she ever came across Harvey Weinstein or somebody like him, she flipped his ass on the, on the, uh. <laughs> Our final story on this month's podcast comes from Susan Crawford, who told us about one of the homemade costumes she made for her children. Good evening. For many kids, Halloween is a frightening experience, and they could be frightened by many things. Some kids are frightened by knocking on a stranger's door and it being opened by an adult in a Frankenstein costume who tries to scare the bejesus out of them. They can be frightened by hoping the neighborhood remembers how many kids there are and not run out of candy, or they can be afraid of crossing paths with that group of kids who are now too old to trick or treat, but run the neighborhood with eggs and toilet paper. My kids, however, had a different fear. Their fear was, what was their overzealous mother going to make them wear on Halloween evening? <laughs> Now you might think that's not too bad, but I have a very good imagination. On a scale of one to 10, my creative vision is a 10. However, my ability to actually make that creation is around a four. And it was that gap that caused me so much trouble and came back to bite me every time. So when my daughter was about 10 and, my, and her brother about eight, I envisioned my daughter in this pumpkin costume. She'd have tights and she'd have on a long sleeve shirt and she'd be covered in this pumpkin that I would create. Well, it started out not too badly. I managed to, out of coat hangers or more, create kind of a skeleton of a pumpkin. And it would slip over her head and she could put her arms through it. And it's so, so far so good. But then I had to make the body, the actual body of the skeleton. And in my defense, this was before there were big package craft shops where you could go in and there'd be an aisle that said pumpkin skin of various <laughs> things. So I fell back on one of the childhood things I like to do and I thought I would paper mache this thing. Now, I don't know if any of you remember paper mache, but you make a paste, like a wallpaper paste out of flour and water. You cut up strips of newspaper, which you dip in there, and you paste it around the outside. And when it dries, it is pretty hard, and it's a kind of a neat surface. But as is always with my projects, I had grossly underestimated the number of layers and the amount of time it would take for the paste to dry. 
Um, traditionally, one waits until the first layer is dry before applying a second one. <laughs> but as time got closer and closer, my definition of dry stretched out to dry-ish, and then maybe slightly dampish. But nevertheless, by the time of Halloween, I did have something that slightly resembled a pumpkin shape. And then all was left for me to do was to put on the orange spray paint. And again, I'd forgotten or never knew that, you know, it takes quite a lot of paint to cover newspaper. So it took at least three layers of paint to cover this, this structure. Now, most of my projects are what you call 20 footers. From 20 feet away, it actually looks pretty good. But unfortunately, my daughter had to get a lot closer than that. She actually had to wear it. And they had been invited down the street to a neighbor's house um, for a pre-trick-or-treat party. So she very gamely lifted her arms up and I put this contraption on her and off they trottled to this party. And as it got darker, I saw the mother coming back with my kids and she's holding the pumpkin costume out to one side. Perhaps she thought it smelled or it was going to attack her or something. But I realized, she told me, she said, you know, that's a very interesting costume. She said, unfortunately, your daughter cannot sit in that costume, so we had to get her out of it. And I thought, well, yeah, there you go. There's the first problem. I never realized, I didn't think about her having to sit in this thing because it's a cage, there's no sitting. And then she turned around and she said, the other little issue is it's damp. And I realized she was holding it this way so as not to get any wet paint on her clothes. But, you know, you're in for a dime, you're in for a dollar. It's too late to do anything now, so you press on. And you say, okay, dear, here are your trick-or-treat bags. Let's put this costume on you. It's going to be just fine. Knowing in the back of your head, you're like, oh, I hope it is fine. Because now she's wearing, in the cold, a damp pumpkin costume. So off they go, and I think, well, things can't get worse. And then it got dark and I see them come back and my daughter is looking very disheveled and the pumpkin has obviously sustained some damage and my son filled me in on the details it turns out that remember that group of kids I told you about the ones with the eggs and the toilet paper that are too old to actually trick-or-treat so they roam the neighborhood well our little intrepid group of trick-or-treaters had run across them and like very wise children, they all took off running. Unfortunately, my daughter forgot that there is no running when you're wearing a pumpkin cage. <laughs> and so instead of running, she fell flat on her face, which made her a perfect target for the egg throwers, and they pelted her with eggs. <laughs> when they left, my bro her brother picked her up and they trundled home. And I did what every good mother would have done then. I took that pumpkin thing, I mashed it up and threw it in the garbage where it belonged. And as a family, we decided never really to bring up the incident again. Thank you. This was the last Open Mic Story Slam of our season. All the winners from this year's Story Slam events will return to compete in our Grand Slam in November for the title of Best Storyteller in York. Tickets for our events are available on our website, yorkstoryslam.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter. You can also follow us on Twitter at York Story Slam, as well as on Facebook, and watch videos of all the stories from our events on our YouTube channel. Our podcast is produced with support from Our York Media. 
They're all about thoughtful storytelling, so we couldn't imagine a better partner. Visit their website at OurYorkMedia.com for stories about some of our neighbors. We hope to see you on stage soon. Thanks for listening. This Story Slam podcast is produced by Carla Wilson of Wilson Media Services. Theme music composed and performed by David Wilson. You can learn more at wilsonmediaservices.com.